Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio if you're listening live or on catch-up via the Byline Times podcast. This time, Britain's plan to send male refugees who cross the channel in small boats to Rwanda while their asylum claims are processed. The act of crossing the channel in a small boat will itself be criminalised reports the Times. Asylum seekers who are allowed to stay in the UK while their claim is processed will be housed in a new generation of reception centres where those who break the rules risk having their claims automatically disqualified. The headline, though, is all about sending people who are fleeing persecution thousands of miles away to Africa. And this is a measure that begs so many questions. Is the UK's asylum system racist, given the difference in treatment between those fleeing violence in places like Syria and Yemen and those leaving war-torn Ukraine? Will the scheme be value for money? How will asylum seekers themselves deal with being transported thousands of miles away? Is Rwanda, scene of a genocide in 1994 and home to numerous human rights abuses, a suitable destination? Will the scheme succeed in its stated aim of reducing the scale of cross-channel traffic, which saw 27 people drowned attempting to make the crossing from France in November? And finally, is this the ultimate dead cat story designed to distract attention from the partygate fines levied on the Prime Minister and his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. We've got an all-star lineup of experts to contribute, but as we go through, if you've got a question to ask or a contribution that you do want to make, and if you're listening live on your phone, then there is a little microphone icon in the bottom left-hand corner. You can tap that to request access, and we'll try and get you on to make your contribution or ask your question. Let's start with uh, Lou Calvi. Uh, Lou is from Refugee Action and uh, has been tweeting vigorously about this today, an expert in refugees and asylum. Welcome along, Lou. How are you doing? Morning, Adrian. Um, uh, reeling slightly from, from, from the news yesterday evening. Um, it's uh, obviously we, we, we've had a, a bit of a heads up that, that this was on the horizon. Preeti Patel's been pitching around trying to find a a country that she can pay uh, to accept our responsibilities for her, um, and and now here we have it with the with the plans uh, announced uh, overnight for Rwanda. So pretty gutted, um, shocked, and um, a bit sickened. It's all a bit nauseating. What does it say to you about Britain's attitude to those fleeing persecution? It's to to, to me. It, it's it it's very colonial um we're essentially what pushing back our borders and 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 sending people to rwanda um it's got a real stench of racist colonialism to it um and ultimately it's entirely self-defeating i mean you look at the australian model uh, in addition to the hugely well documented human rights abuses in in manas and nauru um you know varying estimations on costs but around 2 million per person per year uh, 2 million that, that that the australians are paying per person to essentially um uh, be be uh, have all of their rights stripped away from them you know huge amounts of 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 sexual assault sexual abuses um uh, torture uh inhumane detention and we're going to transfer that 
to to the UK and to Rwanda. So if you look at just the cost alone, even um, putting aside the human rights abuses, £2 million per person per day is a huge amount of money for the taxpayer to be paying. And I know that the government announcement are projecting a terrifically low amount of money. I, I have absolutely no doubt that that's incorrect. That budget is not correct because it doesn't build on any of the learning around offshoring um, that's happened today, such as the Australian model, as I've said. Um, so it's it, it's just going to be totally counterproductive. There is a problem in the UK in how we approach people seeking asylum. But that those problems will not be addressed through offshoring. We have a, an asylum system that is actually fairly low numbers. When you look at the, the, the context across Europe, we take far less asylum seekers than Germany, than France. Um, but we take far longer to make decisions and we make those decisions incorrectly, leading to a, a huge number of appeals. What we need to be doing is investing in the asylum infrastructure, making better, quicker decisions, letting people have the right to work so that they can support themselves through that asylum determination process and have a dignified and safe journey through that asylum process. I can't see that offshoring will give it will bring any practical solutions to the table of the problems that we're having in the UK because all of those problems are about how we approach our asylum system. The problems are not in the numbers of refugees. You used a very striking phrase, Lou. You said that this has got a real stench of racist colonialism. What exactly do you mean by that? Well... Frankly and bluntly, we know that uh, it's unlikely we're going to be sending any white people to Rwanda. We know that these are going to be, in all likelihood, black and brown refugees that we're sending to Rwanda to rebuild their lives. Um, the United Kingdom has an awful and very bloody and violent colonial history that is still we're still feeling the ramifications of that in our society today in terms of the amount of racism that people suffer. At this moment, deciding that we're going to send black and brown refugees back to Rwanda or whatever country it is that they can negotiate to, to give some money to, to take those refugees feels absolutely unconscionable and completely out of pace with what we've seen um, in terms of people wanting to open their homes up to refugees. So only three weeks ago, we had our government saying, open your homes to refugees. Why? Because they're white European refugees. But black and brown refugees were going to what? Send them to Rwanda and pay the Rwandan government to do that for us, um, to meet our responsibilities for us. I, I think, it, yes, it does have a real stench of racist colonialism. And Rwanda itself is, in the eyes of many people anyway, a problematic country in that there was a genocide in 1994, and OK, that was nearly three decades ago now, but it is a country that has been criticised in recent times, including by the British government, as I understand it, for human rights abuses. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think uh, it was only uh, last year that... that, that, that um, 
we uh, our, our government criticise uh, human rights abuses. And also we have to think, you know, the government have been careful to say, oh, well, you know, this is going to be single men that, that you know, we're, we're, we're going to be we're going to be offshoring. Um, a, a, there's a narrative that single men aren't, what, subject to torture? They are. They are. We know that. We see that in our practice day in, day out. We see that single men are subject to torture in the same way that that, that women can be. Um, but also um, in terms of um, uh, LGBT rights in, in, in Rwanda, um, we know that it is not a, a healthy place for LGBT people to be. Uh, we know that there are refugees in the UK that are claiming asylum that are Rwandan nationality. So um, what what are we going to do? Um, are, are we proposing that we're going to send single gay men to Rwanda and hope that they're going to rebuild their lives there? It, that's just terrifying and barbaric. I mentioned in my introduction, Lou, that 27 people died crossing the channel in November. And if you were looking to give the benefit of the doubt to the government over this, you might say that measures are needed to try and discourage the flow of boats across the channel, if only for the safety of those asylum seekers risking their lives. Absolutely. You know, there is no doubt that we need to take action when we have people risking their lives and dying in order to reach safety in the UK. Absolutely no doubt. But every single step proposed and explored by this government will ultimately just lead to more people being driven into the arms of people smugglers and making those dangerous crossings and making their own rafts and getting on them. Um, the harder you make entrance to the United Kingdom, all that it will do is push up the cost that a people smuggler can charge a human being for passage to the United Kingdom. I mentioned earlier that our numbers are actually contextually very small. Um, we know that there are specific reasons why people want to come to the UK. The government itself, its own research, the Home Office's own research has established that there are three principal factors driving people to want to come to the UK. And that's because they speak the language, they have family here, or for some reason, they think that we have, that they associate us with having a tradition of safety, which is questionable uh, following last night's announcement. But that's the Home Office's own research. Now, they can announce plans to offshore uh, to Rwanda, but it's not going to change those three principal factors. If people have family here, they are going to want to come. They will pay whatever it costs, whatever that human cost is, um, they can't make it more difficult than they're currently making it and still people are coming. We have to acknowledge the reality of the reasons why some people want to come to this country and offer them safe routes. I completely agree that action needs to be taken to prevent people from being in dangerous situations. So let's root that action in the reality of the situation, in the reality of the situation that the Home Office's own research has established, and let's offer them safe routes. 
There is a political dimension to this as well, isn't there? I know that Priti Patel, in fairness to her, has been discussing the question of possible offshoring of asylum applications in countries like Rwanda. Rwanda isn't the first choice that Britain has sought to do this in, but it it has been uh, an ongoing Home Office desire for many months now. So it would be unfair to say that it has just come out of nowhere. Nevertheless, given the the fines on Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, his Chancellor, there is something of the dead cat about this, isn't there? The distraction that this will cause and take attention away from Boris Johnson's own misbehaviour. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right. This isn't, you know, this is not a massive shock to to us. We, as I've said at the start, we we've seen for the for the last little while, Priti Patel, you know, going around trying to hustle um, a, a poorer country uh, to take money from us in, in in return for 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 meeting our obligations to to the world's most vulnerable people. I think there are three principal factors for the timing of this announcement. I think Partygate is certainly one of them. Um, um, and uh, and you know finding a, a dead cat and and how disgusting how disgusting that the dead cat in this example is the world's most vulnerable people um, and it always is we see it time and time again we, you know most of the refugee sector was speculating heavily yesterday that we were due to see an announcement of this nature today because you always know that whenever there's 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 a need to move the headlines on um that that refugees and vulnerable migrants will always be the ones that are that are that are punched down on um and and that's 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 a disgrace so i definitely think there's an element of dead of the dead cat here i also think that local elections are looming um, and I think that Boris uh, Johnson knows that if he loses and he loses badly in those local elections, that that he'll have to go. Um, and I and there is this perceived uh, wisdom in our conservative government that um, uh, one needs to uh, appeal appease the the far right somehow. We're seeing this tone of real far right racist rhetoric coming through to government policy, and I think. We're seeing that here. Um, and I, I think that's driving a, a lot of the need to make these announcements before those local elections to try and um, do some damage limitation on, on those elections. And again, I think that's an awful reflection of where government thinks the public narrative is uh, and the public consciousness is around refugees. Um, and, and honestly, I also think there's a there's a desire, the third, the third factor here is I think there's a desire to distract from its really quite woeful performance um, in, in, in offering safety to Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And people who argue that government policy on this isn't racist, it, it, I mean, you, you look at the treatment and the welcome, and I think everybody at Byline Times and Byline Radio welcomes this, the, the welcome that has been offered to people from Ukraine, from war-tour Ukraine, but people who are predominantly white who are being offered access to the UK, albeit through a rather complicated and laborious visa scheme of one description or another. But nevertheless, there is a welcome and there is a public mobilisation around this, as you say, the people who are likely to arrive from Syria, Yemen, other parts of the world, 
are likely to be black, are likely to be brown. Those are the people who will be, or the men amongst them, who will be sent off to Rwanda for processing if this scheme goes ahead. The distinction in practice, the distinction in rhetoric, it really is very difficult to avoid the conclusion that this is anything but a racist policy. Exactly. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable here. I mean, you just look at what's playing out in front of us. White European people from Ukraine being offered, allegedly, supposedly offered safe routes uh, to grab headlines. Um, we saw in Ukraine black and brown people, minoritised people being literally prevented exit at border, being treated awfully at border. You know, very direct scenes of racism in that part of Europe. Um, and then when you play that out into our policy response to different sets of refugees, here we have bespoke policy responses for European Ukrainians, predominantly white Ukrainians. We've got a war that's been raging, raging in Yemen, and we've offered nothing absolutely nothing. How can you avoid the narrative uh, that this is built on race, that these different responses are built on racism and xenophobia? Um, I do not believe for one second that the vast majority of the voting public uh, are motivated uh, by racism. Um, but I find it insulting that our government seems to think that they are, because I have no doubt that they're, they're, they're proposing, they're taking these steps uh, in order to, uh, to as I've said, to, to, to try and gain momentum in the local elections coming up. Lou, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed Thank for joining you. us. That's Lou Calvi from Refugee Action. Very calm, very considered, very clear in what she said. What a really striking phrase that was, though, suggesting that the government's policy over potentially anyway, we'll wait and see if it really happens, but potentially processing migrants offshore in Rwanda. It has got a real stench of racist colonialism, says Lou. My name is Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio from the Byline Times. We don't have any paymasters. We don't have any corporate interest telling us what to say. We are funded entirely by readers and listeners. So if you want to support our work, please hop over to our website, bylinetimes.com. There you'll find out where you can get a subscription to the Byline Times, which is a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by my colleague Hardeep Matharo. If you take out a subscription to the Byline Times, then not only will you get that brilliant monthly newspaper, you'll be supporting the work of the website, Byline TV, Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, where you may well be listening to Byline Radio on catch-up. So, as I say, that's where to go if you do want to support our work. Take out a subscription to the Byline Times via bylinetimes.com. If you do read the Byline Times, you will be sure to come across the writings of Sean Norris, who joins me now. She's a Chief Social Affairs reporter. And, Sean, you've got some knowledge, I know, of the Australian version yeah. of offshoring refugees. Tell us a little bit about that, please. So back in the day, before my time as a journalist, I used to work as a charity copywriter and I worked in 2014 on a campaign for Amnesty Australia to try and end um, child detention on Manus 
Island. So Manus Island was an offshore processing centre set up by the Australian government on Papua New Guinean territory. And what happened was vulnerable people from mostly Sri Lanka, from the civil war in Sri Lanka that had raged for such a long time, um, who were seeking asylum in, the, in Australia, they would be sent to this camp on Manus Island. And at the point I was looking at this campaign, it was for men, women and children. And what happened was Amnesty Australia sent me and my colleagues um, these illustrations that children had done from Manus Island. And I'll never forget them as long as I live. They, they have stayed with me for all of this time because every single child drew a huge, angry sun. And obviously children always draw pictures of the sun. But these were these suns, they were just massive. They were really hot. You could just feel the kind of oppression of the sun in these pictures. And it really made you realise that these children were stuck in this sort of barren landscape, you know, hem hemmed in by wire fences, a sort of concrete floor in these camps. And the other thing that we're in, and the sun would just be beating down on them day after day after day. And the other thing that these children drew were like pictures of men crying. And it was just looking through these illustrations, you know, they were childish illustrations. They were like ones that you, your own kids would do, or, you know, pictures that my niece would do, but of these really distressing images of this, these huge suns, this hot sun, and these, these men crying. And, and you just were like, these are children. These are, these are children who have fled a civil war, who just, who just want to have everything that another child has, you know, to, to be able to run around, to, to see their parents happy and smiling, to to not grow up surrounded by this heat and this this barrenness and this trauma. And I mean, thankfully that campaign worked. It, it they did end child detention in Manus Island. And and I know that the Home Office has been very clear that if we go ahead with this offshore asylum processing policy that it is for men only. But you know, I, I feel it's a dark day for human rights in the UK to, to be reminded of those illustrations and to think that this is the direction that our country is going in. I think it's a dark day. Kathy, who is listening to us, has just retweeted something from Joe Pike, who is a Sky News political correspondent. Joe reminds us that in 2015, and thank you, Kathy, by the way, Joe reminds us that in 2015, UK judge Emma Arbuthnot refused to extradite five men to Rwanda because she argued that it is an authoritarian repressive state, stifles opposition, and it's suspected of threatening and killing opponents. People are tortured in secret camps and it no longer has a free press. So this is the place of refuge to which we are sending people, admittedly, as you say, Sean, not children. But this is where we're proposing to send men who are fleeing persecution. I think it's really shocking. And I and the other, you know, we, we, uh, Australia has been raised as a kind of, the dark example of offshore processing. But I think there's another um, case study which is worth looking at. And that was um, that in 2013, Israel started to take um, people seeking asylum from Eritrea over to Rwanda. And there's a really interesting piece of research by the University of Oxford that found that when they arrived in Rwanda, they weren't um, provided 
with um, an, a chance to claim asylum. And many of the people ended up leaving and falling into the hands of people smugglers in order to make it back to your in order to make it to Europe. And so we have these kind of two examples of offshore processing where it's been a human rights disaster, a human rights failure. And I think, you know, there are very real human rights concerns about the country, about Rwanda. We know that this is a state where there has been allegations of torture against individuals. We know that there are allegations of a lack of free press. We know, as Lou said, that there are issues for um, the LGBTIQ community. So again, it's like, this, this notion that we've had of global Britain post-Brexit, that we will be this kind of making deals with, with other countries um, about trade, about rights, about now it seems about our asylum policy. But actually, what are the, what are the backgrounds of these countries that we're working with? And, and do we really want to be holding hands with countries that have these records of human rights abuses? Although now, you know, in my view, offshore processing is a human rights abuse in itself. So do we really have the moral high ground here? I don't know. Sean, thanks very much indeed for your contribution too. Thank uh, you. Really good to hear that. That's very interesting and particular insight that you had to offer. As I say, you can read Sean at Byline Times or at bylinetimes.com. Please take out a subscription to the Byline Times monthly newspaper. That supports all of our work in the Byline empire. Nobody owns us. No proprietor tells us what to say. There are no corporate interests telling us which direction to go in. We can report free from fear or favour because we're funded by ordinary people like you and an annual subscription to the Byline Times newspaper is just £39 a year. Let's speak to uh, Bavini Patel who wants to join in. Hello Bavini, how are you doing? Yeah, good morning. Um, I'm okay. Really saddened to hear the news of what this government is trying to um, pass as a policy. Um, What I really wanted to kind of bring to this space is that when we talk about this, is to remember always to remind people that this is a distraction policy. This government is about to fall with the fines that they had issued in the last couple of days. And they've thrown in something so fearful, so abjectively horrifying that, that they're hoping that we will be distracted and not hold them to account. So my call here is make sure we frame this as that we have a broken democracy in this country. We have a broken government. And this is just another example of the many, many failings of the government and that this government does not speak for us because the majority of this country no longer believes in this government. And this is where we need to be putting all our efforts in, in making sure where does the, where does the power lie and where does the blame lie across from migrant streams, from the Nationalities and Borders Bill. We haven't even passed this na- this toxic Nationalities Borders Bill. And look what they're, <clears throat> they're showing us exactly what they're planning to do with that bill from this migrant stream to Rwanda. This will legitimise any actions going forward. So the Nationalities and Borders Bill, the Police Crime Sentencing Bill, these are two major pol- bills that are coming through that will mean that they will no longer have to consult any people. They will just be able to enact a migrant stream that they're trying to propose here without actually proposing and just implement. So it's all for us to remember the wider implications of how this government is operating. And it is essentially 
a broken society. We have a broken government who has broken society and they do not speak for the people. They are speaking for corporates and their own self-interest. And whilst we keep getting distracted because I'm completely triggered this morning with this new Rwanda migrant scheme and they uh, scheme that they're in trying to propose, and they know that they know that we will run to every uh, issue that they try and present. But let's be clear: it's this government, no individual in the government. We don't want just Boris out. We don't want just Pretty Patel out. We want this government out. And thank you for listening. Um, thank you for being here by Line Times because without you, a voice like mine wouldn't necessarily be heard. So thank you. Oh, Bavini, it's been great to speak to you and hear from you. And thank you for joining in. And please do so again. Uh, I will go to Nazma in just a moment. Nazma, just bear with me a second, though, because we've been joined by Zoe Gardner. <coughs> excuse me. We've been joined by Zoe Gardner from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. And I know that today is an extremely busy day for uh, people like Zoe with all sorts of uh, media organisations after her and after people like Luke Calvi as well. So please forgive me if I go first to uh, Zoe. Zoe, welcome along. Great to have you with us. Hi there. Lovely to be back with you. It's been... We try to be fair on Byline, but we also try to be honest because that's the job of journalism. Taking a fairness point, as it were, the government argues that we've had a number of deaths, 27 deaths in November of people crossing the channel and that that what they're trying to do is choke off the demand amongst people seeking to come to Britain who therefore are risking their lives in the channel and who are at the same time as well making themselves vulnerable to people smugglers. Is there something to that argument? Um, No, there isn't. There's no evidence to support it whatsoever and I can explain in a few ways why that won't work. So to start with... Um, we have precedent for this decision. So there's no new ideas under the sun and there's certainly no new ideas in Priti Patel's brain. Um, this actually has been done before. Israel has had a an agreement exactly like this in place with Rwanda since 2013. And so we have plenty of evidence of how it actually works. And what happens is when refugees are sent to Rwanda from Israel, they are um, arbitrarily detained. Um, in many cases, they're beaten up. They're beaten up, especially if they um, are or are perceived to be part of the LGBT community. Um, and eventually, of course, they don't stay in Rwanda. Um, they they pay smugglers in order to escape. Um, why would somebody who has gone through hell, who has risked their life, who has travelled through countries like Libya, where they may have been trafficked, where they may have been sold into slavery, where they may have been abused in all sorts of terrible ways, somebody who's risked their life by putting them themselves onto a small boat in the channel, why would they then shrug and say, okay, I'll stay in Rwanda for the rest of my life now? Um, of course they won't. This is just funneling UK taxpayer money, huge amounts of it, back into the smuggling trade, creating a new and very um, lucrative smuggling um, route for criminal gangs to exploit, to bring people back out of Rwanda so that they can eventually find safety. Because ultimately, none of these harebrained and cruel and despicable suggestions will ever make refugees simply disappear. That doesn't happen. And another way in which, I'm sorry to be going on and on, but it really is such a ludicrous argument that this is tackling smuggling. They're talking about 
for the time being, I mean, who knows, sending men um, who arrive on these small boats to um, Rwanda. So, you know, the women and the children, um, there's far more incentive for them who normally have been protected by sending the men in advance, for sending the men who are more hardy, who are more able to make those dangerous journeys. They send them in advance. Well, now that incentive to send men in advance is being taken away. There are just as many men, women and children who are forced into displacement around the world. What we're going to do is incentivize more women and children to get onto these boats to then get the men to join them later. It's absolutely backwards. It's not going to prevent smuggling. It's only as ever going to be the criminal gangs of smugglers who are rubbing their hands with glee at more money they can make from this government's horrible, cruel, hard water regime. Bhavini Patel, who's listening in and made a contribution a few moments ago, Zoe, said that we shouldn't get distracted either from the fines levied on Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. I mentioned to Luke Alby from Refugee Action earlier that in fairness to the government, that there has been a discussion about this. In fact, they've tried other nations uh, and, and asked other nations to be the processing centre before Rwanda. So this hasn't emerged entirely out of the blue, but how much is the timing of the announcement, do you think, designed to distract attention from Boris Johnson's law-breaking? Um, well, I, I have to say that Bavini has a point. I mean, it's, it's, it would be very naive to think it's a complete coincidence that yesterday we were talking about the pressure that the prime minister was under to resign because he's broken the law. Um, and today we're talking about them foreigners again. Um, so I do think that the, the announcement has been timed carefully um, and deliberately. It's also in advance of the local elections. It's throwing some red meat to the base. Um, but of course, yes, this, this plan has been underway and it's been trotted out in different forms to grab the headlines um, several times already. So, you know, we always just keep going back to the tired old, you know, what's it going to be this time? Is it going to be wave machines in the channel? Is it going to be, you know, uh, sending people off to Rwanda? What's it going to be the next story? And then, um, you know, Boris Johnson's about to make the announcement. Um, I've heard people say, oh, well, we'll find out the detail then. I'm sure we won't find out the detail then. So, you know, they, they may have just be, been able to sign this deal. And they, so that it is the culmination of a lot of time spent and it has been in the works for a while. But the decision to announce today, um, where the detail is clearly lacking of how this is supposedly going to work, and I might add, of course, it can't work, really, um, that that is really about taking the pressure off the prime minister and pointing the pointing the finger back at the desperate foreigners, the few thousand people that we could so easily accommodate if we made that the priority to to let them rebuild their lives here in safety. Mm -hmm. so one final thought, Zoe, and this is. Uh an example of how the media works, really, the structure within which this news is released. I became aware yesterday late afternoon that Times Radio in particular was seeking guests for this story, and that presumably was because the Times newspaper had had a leak. Because, I mean, this is not the kind of information that a, a journalist un uncovers, as it were. It's not a dark secret. It, it was known that this was coming. So this, it seems to me, has come from a leak to the Times and therefore through to Times Radio. And the Times, 
you can't blame them if they're get, being given a, a jump on a government announcement. Of course, as journalists, they're one going to be first with the news. But of course, then because word gets out, other journalists get onto the story, and it then becomes the story, and it edges out the party gate fines situation mm. and it's it's just really an insight i think into how the media works and into how politics works but just throw something out there leak it to a, a, a preferred source others then don't want to get left behind that's an entirely reasonable journalistic instinct in normal circumstances but of course it does ensure that the other story disappears or becomes much less prominent Absolutely. I think you're so right. And I think, you know, it is it does say something about also our sort of 24 hour news culture and and how how all of the news is breaking. And it, it's it's so important to be the first person with the hot take on Twitter to get as many, you know, as much clout as possible. I think all of this sort of plays into it um, to a degree. But we must never lose sight of the fact that what we're doing here is, you know, we're, we're enabling politicians to play football with the lives of some of the most vulnerable people in the world you know we've seen people drown in the channel um, men women and children their lives were worth as much as you yours or mine and you know we we, we must not lose sight of the fact that that we are being manipulated in these ways and we must keep at the forefront of the conversation i'm really glad we're talking about it now how this is really about saving the prime minister's skin um, and, and, and really, it's, it's nothing new because it's always been about blaming refugees, um, blaming foreigners, blaming migrants. At one point, it was Polish plumbers. At another point, it's people crossing the channel. At another point, it could be another group. There's always going to be a scapegoat. You know, at one point, it's, it's people living um, in poverty and, and having to rely on benefits. There's always going to be a group that we can shout and say, no, look at them, look at them. But we should be holding the politicians who run this country to account. We have a cost of living crisis. We have poverty going through the roof, food bank use soaring. We have an energy crisis. Um, these are all issues. And of course we had, you know, government officials, the head of this government breaking the law during the lockdown when we were all suffering as a country. And we absolutely should hold them to account and we should show them what we think of them on the 5th of May at the local elections. Zoe, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking part. That's uh, Zoe Gardner from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. And I should say, if there's any Conservative MPs or uh, councillors or supporters listening and who, who want to uh, support this scheme, I would love to hear you genuinely. I, I certainly don't want to hear from any racists, thank you. But if you can put together an argument for the outsourcing of asylum seekers, of male asylum seekers to Rwanda, I'd really love to hear from you. We are open to debate and discussion here on Byline Radio. Really appreciate Zoe taking time to talk to us on Byline Radio. Uh, let's get a word with Nazma. Hello, Nazma. Welcome to Byline Radio. How are you doing? Hi, thank you so much. Um, and I just want to say a big shout out to Bylines. Um, I can't wait for the time that you become mainstream media. Excellent work. Um, I mean, I, if I remember rightly, you were the ones that broke the PPE um, fiasco when no other media were actually picking up on it. Um, so, you know, big shout out to you. And if people can subscribe, please do, um, because like they said, they speak the truth and we need um, we need media speaking the truth because at the moment we're being fed so much um, 
rubbish. It's it, it's almost like you know fake news is 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 everywhere. So that's just my. I, I'm not getting paid for that little plug-in, just to say. But no, no. Well, that's very kind of you. I'll, big I'll, up I'll, to, let, I'll let you eulogise. That's fine. <laughs> big up to violence. But on this, absolutely fuming. Um, but. To be honest, like like many many speakers have said before, it's it's becoming oh it's it's becoming the conservative way of doing things. You know, as soon as they're in hot water, uh, bring out a story of migrants, refugees. Um, the last time something like this happened, it did sort of backfire. Um, RNLI got huge donations, um, so I'm hoping this does backfire as well. But just a few things I want to say on the fact of this is. Um, I just don't understand what the Tory government's problem is. It's that the issue is they can't process, they're not processing people properly or quickly enough. People arrive, they've got no system. The Home Office is in a mess. That's their problem. And they've had 12 years to sort this out. And instead of trying to sort their mess out, they're trying to just pass it on. Um, The difficulty is what's going to happen is, um, at least if they're in this country, we can hold them accountable of the processing on how they're doing it and things like that. As soon as it goes offshore, it's going to get worse. We won't know what's happening. And like um, Joey said, um, people are going to get through the net. They're going to pay smugglers to um, run away. They're going to be harmed, beaten up. There's a lot of things that can't happen here um, because obviously we still have some sort of laws and we do have charities and organ- brilliant organisations looking after um, after the refugees and signings. Because, but once it goes abroad, that's it. You know, we've lost all hope of even you know finding out what's going on. So we we do have to fight this. Um, I just don't understand, you know, I mean, I mean, to be honest, I do understand because we know the Tory government's racist and we and we also know they think this is going to be an election winner, um, you know, whether it's the May the 5th or whether it's in, in, in the general elections. Um, but one of the things that I do want to say is this, this sending the men abroad, sending the men there and keeping, you're splitting families up. So not only are these vulnerable people going through so much, you know, babies crossing the, uh, mothers with babies crossing the channel and things like that, you're then splitting the family up, making it even worse for them. That Tories haven't got a plan. They're scrabbling. It's almost like they're just scrabbling at straws. Um, and what's really interesting, and I didn't know this, is the fact that Israel used Rwanda. Now, we know Priti Patel's got some sort of link with Israel. I mean, she got sacked for having secret meetings there. It's really interesting that other countries have refused this, but she's gone to Rwanda, which Israel used. So again, what's going on underneath there, all this murkiness and things like that. So I think for me, um, and I think one of the early callers said, let's not be, yes, it's it's an awful story and we must keep on top of it. But remember, we've got a prime minister that's broken the law. We've got a chancellor that we don't even know whether he's British, whether he's American, whether he's um, Indian. What what on earth was he up to? Was he legal? You know, was was it legal when he became chancellor? What, what is he, what is he doing? What's the what what's the government doing? There's so much. Yeah, that I, th- I think that's very, it, I think it, it 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 was legal when he became chancellor. I think the question mark was about whether he still had a green card, which gave him dual citizenship with the United States. Because if you have U.S. citizenship, you are supposed to renounce other citizenships, but there's nothing in Britain that prohibits you from having a British citizenship and US citizenship at the same time, as I understand it. But you make some very interesting points and, you know, who knows what murk lies beneath. Thank you very much indeed for joining in. I will go to uh, make Wales a poverty-free zone in a moment, but uh, Bavina, you wanted to just make another comment, I think, Bavina, yeah? 
Yes, please. Thank you. I really want to um, reframe something here um, in so much as it's not a cost of living crisis. It's a wealth distribution crisis. We really must reframe our language of what this government is doing to the population here and to the people that are needing rescuing from abroad, right? We have a wealth distribution crisis. Our government is not a democracy. The people holding power are extracting wealth in billions of pounds continuously for every moment they remain in government. So... We know that we have enough wealth in this country to look after everyone that's here, especially all of those amazing, beautiful humans in this country that are struggling. It is not a cost of living crisis. It's a wealth distribution crisis that has been put upon all of us, as well as migrants, right? We need to tie up this language and keep those centered, focused of the people that are doing the harm. And that is this Tory government. If we cannot keep focus here, they will continue to bring out different schemes. And as long as we allow this government to remain in power, multiple schemes like this will continue to emerge, especially without any consultation, because the Police Crime Sentencing Bill and the Nationality Supporters Bill will mean that even having this conversation on radio in a free press will be legal uh, illegal. So, all right. Well, Bavini, yeah. let's not go too far down that uh, that road. Where we, uh, things may be, uh, you know, there may be threats to what we regard as our traditional freedoms to protest. But I, I don't think anybody has yet suggested that we can't have discussions like this in a space like this. But I appreciate your call and I appreciate your passion as well. Let's speak to uh, Mark. Uh, uh, sorry, to somebody whose Twitter handle is Make Poverty in Wales. Go on, complete the rest for me. Oh, I can't remember what the rest is. Um, it's, my, my, it's Make Wales a poverty-free zone, zone or something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your What's your real name? Elspeth, is it? It's, it's Elspeth Webb. Yes, I'm. I'm, um, I'm a retired professor of medicine, and I spent some time studying tropical medicine and working in Africa. And um, I mean, I was just very struck when I heard this policy, uh, and it's not something I've heard people talk about. But Rwanda is. Is a, is a hollow endemic malarial area, which, which basically means that it's got high risk of malaria in all areas at all times of the year. Now, when I went to work in Africa, um, I had the mosquito nets, good quality mosquito nets. I had malarial pre- preventing drugs and I had quick access to um, stronger drugs if I caught it. Uh, and even then, some of my colleagues, you know, when I was working there, got, got quite ill. Sen- people who've grown up in these areas, they develop slow immunity through through their lives. So by adulthood, they're, they're pretty immune to malaria, not completely. But that has a price. They will have lost some of their peers who will have died, you know, on the way to, to, it, to that journey of developing immunity. Now, quite a big proportion of, of the men that they're talking about sending to Rwanda are coming from areas where there is no malaria. You know, Afghanistan, Iran most of the Middle East, there's no malaria. So you're basically sending completely non-immune adults to a hollow endemic malarial area without access to good health care. And it's tantamount to just, I mean, a lot of them will die. Uh, and the ones that don't die will get sick a lot and repeatedly. Um, and, and 
essentially we're, we're creating death camps. I mean, it's death by neglect and disease rather than murder, but death camps just the same. And I, I, to me, this is a completely openly fascist policy. Um, I'm not hearing the Labour Party being very noisy about this. And I, I mean, I'm a member of the Labour Party, but if they put their red wall votes above this, no, they choose not to unequivocally oppose this. I just think we're lost as a, as a country. We've just lost all decency and all decent values. I mean, I'm, I'm reeling. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously by my age, I'm someone who grew up in the 60s and 70s. They weren't perfect times, but it was a time when I remember people aspired to be decent, to be fair, to treat people kindly. And I am I just cannot believe that I'm living in a country where privileged, educated civil servants and politicians have developed such a policy. It's, 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 it's just mind-numbing, actually. So I just wanted to make that point that nobody's talking... No, well, listen, Elspeth, I'm, I'm listening spellbound, quite honestly, because I've not heard anybody else make that point in the numerous discussions that there have been in various media. You are somebody who is a, a, an, an expert in this area. You've been to the area... And I'm struck that what you're saying is that people who travel to Rwanda because of its the presence of malaria, who travel there, who don't have immunity, are likely to die and likely to die in some numbers. And they will die because of the actions of a British government. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think people aren't mentioning this because they're probably like you, not aware. If you know, if you're not, if you haven't done tropical medicine, and if you've not worked in an area like that, you won't be aware. Um, but but Rwanda is, you know, one of one, a very highly malarious part of Africa. Bit like I mean, the area, area I didn't work in Rwanda, worked in the coastal area of Kenya, but that's similarly an area with high um, malarial transmission throughout the year. And Rwanda, the whole of Rwanda's like that. Um, and I, well, I I just. I don't know what to say, really. It's it's just horrifying. Elspeth, really appreciate you joining in, though. Thank you. And that is some uh, real expertise. And I love it when people who are just ordinary, for the sake of a better word, uh, ordinary callers phone in with real insight and real expertise and knowledge, which Elspeth clearly has. Let's speak to Dan. Hello, Dan. Welcome to Byline Radio. You are right? Sorry, Ben. Sorry, ben. Oh, hi. Yeah, thank you. My name is Ben. Um, yeah, I'm involved in the Labour campaign for free movement. Um, I just wanted to, I, I, I saw, I got the Twitter alert that this was on and I jumped in. So I've heard a couple of the speakers, but I might have missed some before. So excuse me if the if if a couple of these things have been said already. But the first was just very quickly in response to something I heard as I was coming on the call, talking about, um, you know, um, government ministers having green cards or dual national, you know, I think we should be very careful about making those arguments because with surely the people that want to say that wherever you're from, whatever your, um, whatever your, uh, you know, your papers, your passport, you have political rights here, you have the right to speech, you have the right to vote and you have the right to run for election. We should be fighting for that. Um, so, you know, in the same way as it's you know, obviously these, the you know, government ministers for the Tories are not the underprivileged, but we should be careful of how those arguments bounce back on people who are more vulnerable or don't have those rights. But, but on the actual topic at hand, 
so somebody said, you know, once, once people have been taken to uh, an offshore processing centre, they're out of reach of our scrutiny. And that's that's true. That's why they want to do this, I think. It's one of the main reasons they want to do this. But it's we have to be thinking about what we can do. So we need to be now, I think that the migrants' rights movement in this country needs to be making links, looking at who we can speak to, their campaigners in Rwanda, um, and also thinking about, well, they can pass a law, but people only get transported and only get detained if the people who work for the British government, the airlines and the Rwandan government cooperate. And we've already seen that the PCS is talking about um, going on strike against um, pushbacks in the channel. We need to be talking to um, to our colleagues in different in different trade unions, in the airline unions, in the in the civil service union in Britain and in Rwandan trade unions to say, OK, what can we do to put spanners in the cogs right if the airlines won't take off if the planes won't take off because the pilots and the stewards won't transport people then people won't be moved if rwandan trade unions go on strike then rwanda won't be able to fulfill their side of the deal and detain people for britain i hear what you're saying ben that uh, this can only happen if people are in some sense complicit with the policy but if people work for an airline, if people work for the border force and their income and the food that their family eat is dependent on it, and it's an official government policy, I'd suggest that people will find it very difficult to resist. I mean, there may be some brave souls who will do that and maybe risk losing their jobs as a result. Many others will, I suspect, shrug their shoulders. They may disagree with the policy, but we'll feel we'll rationalise it that this is a legal thing that has been supported by the government of the day, and that it is their job. You know that, that, that I suspect is how most people will see it if we get to that stage with this policy. I mean, absolutely. Um, this is not to say it's an easy thing to ask of people, um, or that it will easy be easy to win. But you know, we are at a point where the PCS, the Civil Service Trade Union, are talking about going on strikes against pushbacks. So we see a willingness there. And what they need is, I know it's you know it's a big, it's not in our sort of uh, default position to be in solidarity with people who work for the Home Office. We're going to have to go into that uncomfortable territory to set to. Uh, for those people that are willing to stand up to say that we're with you and that the organisation and in the unions is what's going to protect them. It is the case that um, hundreds of deportation flights from various European countries have already been stopped because pilots ground the flight. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one key avenue. Um, so, you know, it's not without hope. I'm not saying it's um, it's impossible, but it's our job to make to see if we can make that happen, I feel. It remains to be seen whether this is a, a legal policy or not. Boris Johnson has said that he does expect legal challenges to it, and I expect that there will be. Britain does have obligations under international law and because of international treaties and charters that it has signed. So whether this will comply with those, I think, very much remains to be seen. And there's been a suggestion as well that the people who apply for asylum will be applying for asylum in Rwanda and Rwanda 
will therefore be the country where they are granted asylum if their application is successful. So it, it doesn't automatically follow that having been processed in Rwanda, that they will then be allowed to come to the UK. What that means for their families, who, as people have suggested, may already be here, who knows? So, you know, there are so many question marks, still so many holes in this policy. It remains to be seen where we go with that. I just want to finish with a, a tweet from my colleague Adam Bienkoff. Adam is the Westminster and political correspondent for Byline Times. And he's got a picture of uh, a gentleman wearing Royal Air Force colours. He's standing next to a plane and he's got, a, I think, three stripes on his arm. So this is looks like a World War II picture, somebody who served the United Kingdom in the Second World War. And Adam says, my granddad travelled thousands of miles from the terrors of a Siberian gulag in order to be welcomed into the UK. Under this government, he would instead have been shipped off to another camp in Rwanda, a country where people suffer arbitrary detention, abuse and torture. Uh, really interesting insight from Adam. Thank you very much indeed to Ben. Thanks to uh, Elspeth. Thanks to Bavini. And thanks to everybody who's taken part. Really appreciated the insight and the passion that so many of you, of you have brought to this subject. Just to say, if you're listening on Catch Up via the Byline Times podcast, do follow at Byline Radio on Twitter because that's where you can hear our live discussions. And if you are listening live on Byline Radio, well, thank you very much indeed. The Byline Times podcast is produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White in Birmingham. And you can support our work by taking out a subscription to The Byline Times, a brilliant monthly newspaper. You get more details at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And if you take out a subscription to the paper, you'll be supporting fearless, independent journalism. So, thanks very much indeed. We'll see you again very soon. Do follow at Byline Radio on Twitter for updates and when we're next going to be live. In the meantime, ta-da, I'll see you soon. Cheers now. Bye.